BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, girl, hey. Welcome to Taste of Taylor, my weekly podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Strecker. You might know me from Sirius XM Radio. I mean, I was there for like 12 years after all. But then Howard Stern allegedly got jealous of me, so I had to leave. I was actually able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and start my own podcast, Taste of Taylor, which is now officially with Dear Media. I'm so excited to say that. Ha! So I promise you in this podcast, you're going to either learn about something, you're going to be inspired by someone that's like always coming from a perspective of like humor, then this is the place for you. I hope you enjoy this little snack. Hey guys, this is Note to Self and I'm your host, Peyton Sarton. From Q&As and breakup tips to simply navigating every stage of life, Note to Self is a space to get messy, explore new perspectives, and ultimately empower yourself and others. Grab some wine or a mocktail, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, y'all. So I kind of just want to jump into today's episode. The only life update I have is that my apartment tour vlog is live. If you're listening to this right now, it is up on my YouTube channel. I am doing the full DC apartment tour, and I can't wait for y'all to watch. Um, I really love this apartment. I think it's absolutely beautiful, and I'm very excited to share. But that's really the only life update I have. This is kind of a long episode, so I just wanted to jump right in and start talking with my dad. So today's episode is with Chris Sarton. Like I said, he's my father. He is an ex-fighter pilot in the United States Air Force, and he is a war veteran as well. I've kind of just looked up to him for, you know, work reasons and integrity reasons for my entire life. I feel like we brought a lot of values of the military into our home, as well as also just being very much a part of the military in my formative years. My dad got out of the military when I was 13. So from, you know, being born on an Air Force base from zero years old to 13 years old, the Air Force played a massive role in my life and in my growing up. My little brother was actually born when I was 12. So he has like a completely different perspective on life. He's lived in one place his whole life. He, he just lives in a very different world than I did. My parents had me when they were relatively young. My mom was 21 and my dad was 25. And then my sister later was also born on an air force base when my mom was about 24. So we just live in two different worlds, but I thought it'd be interesting to share with y'all a little bit more about the military background. And I really wanted to have my dad on. I actually recorded this before I left Dallas with him. And it's like I said, somewhat of a long episode. So I just want to jump right in and have this conversation with my father. So let's go. All right. I'm sitting here with my dad and military 
speak. They call him the Phantom. Hi, Dad. Hey, Peyton. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm going to just get started with my dad. I already obviously told you a little bit about him. So I want him to tell us about himself a little bit, where he grew up, kind of how he entered the military, things like that. Perfect. Tell us about your whole life. (laughs) As all pilots like to talk about themselves as their favorite subject. Mm -hmm. So I'll just start off. I was born in in Houston, Texas, and moved to Waco. And then my parents got divorced, and I was fairly young. I was eight years old. And we moved to Port Arthur, Texas, which was a lot different than anything I ever experienced in in, uh, my memories of Waco, at least. Port Arthur was a very blue-collar town. And we lived with our grand, my grandparents in the uh, very beginning days, early days, as you know, both mom and dad were trying to get on their feet from being split up. My mom was a teacher. Dad was an architect. Dad lived in Houston, so we saw him every other weekend. But really, it was kind of a struggle, to be honest. Yeah. Growing up in a very lower economic uh, status, just, you know, I felt blessed to be where I was, but also felt like I had to work hard to get out of it. But very normal elementary school. Uh, junior high school and then high school there in that area. But I got to see, I went from a very nice, safe environment in Waco to an environment which was completely almost 180 out from what I thought I was going to be in as mm-hmm. a young young boy, young man. But it actually turned out really, really, really being a, a big blessing for me just because I got to see so many different parts of society, whether it be, you know, race, racial issues economic issues. I got to see people struggle and I got to see people pull themselves out of struggle Mm -hmm. uh, into something they wanted to do, which was a blessing. So that's where I grew up. And then I went to college. I had a short stint at the Air Force Academy, was lucky enough to to get into that school at that time. And it wasn't because of anything that I did necessarily. It was, it was through sports and through athletics. And then that, that changed a little suddenly for me. Well, you played basketball. Yeah, I was, so that's I was, your, that was your sport of choice there, right? Yeah, it was my sport mm-hmm. of choice at Air Force. And just through, through injuries and through just circumstances, it just wasn't the place for me anymore. They, I lost my pilot qualification, the ability at least to compete for a pilot slot. I lost that with an eye injury. And then at that point, I decided I think probably Texas A&M was a better choice. My dad went mm-hmm. to A&M. I always felt the bond with that place. and, and You and, scratched your cornea, right? Is yep. that what I remember yeah. you saying? Yeah, I got poked Playing in the basketball? eye pretty good. And yeah. I had a poke in the eye and it, it healed up over yeah. time, but it just, that was one of those things that at the time it disqualified me. Mm-hmm. And I was very, at that point in my life, like I think most people that are 18 years old, you're only looking forward about the next, you know, 24 hours. If yeah. you're lucky, if you're, if you're really out there, you're looking forward to the next, you know, 36, 72, mm-hmm. maybe a week ahead. But I, I was just kind of looking very short-sighted and I kind of, I, I panicked a little bit thinking, this is the end of my flying career at 18 years old, and I've never flown an airplane. But A&M was an option, and it turned to be a really good option as I got through that place and finished up and then and then went into the active duty Air Force, which was kind of where we'll pick up, I think, here. Yeah, so I want to go back to college real fast because yeah. you were in the Corps of Cadets, and if y'all yeah. are not familiar with Texas A&M, the Corps of Cadets is kind of like the military school inside of A&M. And when you leave the Corps of Cadets, that's kind of like basic training. Is it not? Or do you have to still go to something? Yeah, no. You kind of go direct into the No, you said it right. The the Corps at A&M, it's at Texas A&M, the the Corps of Cadets, is just an ROTC detachment. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, and most colleges, most universities across the country have ROTC. The difference between the Corps of Cadets and at A&M and every other ROTC, with the exception of maybe the Citadel and, and VMI, 
is it's a seven day military academy. I mean, you are in uniform, you're, you're kind of have a military obligation and you live a military life for seven days a week on a civilian campus, mm -hmm. uh, which is really the best of both worlds for, for what I wanted, which is kind of, you know, kind of weird. It's a little bit different than the normal college student, yeah. you know, but it was really good for me. I met some unbelievable people. A lot of them are still big parts of my lives. And, you know, as you know, they're mm -hmm. still parts of your life for, to an extent. I mean, my godfather, my sister's godfather, yeah. a lot of those guys became pilots yeah. as well. Yeah. So in college, you decided to major in aerospace <laughs> engineering. I don't know why I chose that. <laughs> So that he's a rocket scientist. Um, you mm -hmm. went through college doing, I mean, you had the base. It's like, honestly, it's like saying I'm a lawyer because I went <laughs> through poli sci, but <laughs> you also mastered in that aeronautical sciences, correct? Yeah. So yeah. I like to just note that because I feel like that's a huge part in becoming a pilot is that a lot of people look at Air Force pilots, like they're just kind of a different breed. I think there's a lot of a lot of brains behind that. And what makes you good at a pilot as a pilot a lot is your hand in hand with your abilities mentally in a field like that, I think. Yeah. I think it's a huge, um, at least helps a little bit. Yeah. It was definitely a challenge for me because I was not, I mean, looking back, I was the dumbest person in all of my classes for mm -hmm. sure. At, at least I felt that way. I felt like I, I was, I just didn't catch on as fast as everyone else. And so it, it for me, what it helped me with that, it just, I had to work really hard. And at the end of it, when I graduated, which I couldn't believe that I did, I just, I realized that you could almost do anything you want to do if you're willing to put in the work. Almost. Mm -hmm. You know, there's physical limitations in some things and yeah. some things there's just luck involved. Yeah. Hard work wins out. When did yeah. you know that you wanted to be a fighter pilot? Because at first, didn't you tell me you wanted to be an astronaut at some yeah, point? Yeah. Heck yeah. I mean, all, all kids, firemen, right? Policemen, mm -hmm. astronaut. Really, being a pilot was not even in the picture of the plan. I, from a very early age, for whatever reason, I, I thought I'd be a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a, a first dream was an NFL quarterback. I thought I would be the quarterback. And I wasn't a big fan of the Cowboys because my mom was such a big fan. So mm -hmm. I, I, I rooted against Dallas for a lot of, a lot of reasons. But for <laughs> some unpack that in therapy. <laughs> several years of therapy will, will help me with that, I'm sure. But it as, as I got older and I realized physical limitations were probably going to prohibit me from doing that. And there was a guy also named Troy Aikman who showed up. who was pretty good. One of his <laughs> Super him. Bowls. Yeah. yeah. It really was my mom. She said I was like a junior in high school and, you know, still thinking possibly I would be a pro football player. You know, she said, hey, this, look at this thing called the Air Force Academy and look at this thing called the Air Force. Because none of my family, besides my grandfather who was in the Navy during the war, and mm -hmm. it was, that's all he was in. It wasn't like he had a career. It wasn't, yeah. You know, it wasn't, even in my my near vision or my far vision to be in the military. But once I started looking at it and, and seeing, of course, a movie came out, Top Gun came out. Did you see the new ones about to come out? Yeah. Yeah, it looks cool. Maverick yeah. looks really old, though. I know. makes me feel really old. I will say watching <laughs> those movies, there's something, we can talk about this in a second, but there's something that's ingrained in me when I hear the sound of jets, yeah. especially when I see them, because they're just so powerful and they're already cool in general. But there's yeah. something, I grew up, initially on a military base and then even when we left living on it we were on and off the military base all the oh. time and the sound comforts me and I told someone that yeah. recently or said something on my story and they were like you know that's like not relatable at all usually when people hear jets <laughs> flying over them they're like what the fuck so I'm excited to see that movie because yeah I'm excited for yeah. it it's been a long time I think it's supposed to come out a couple of years ago but obviously through all the stuff that's gone on they've delayed it but I saw that and then 
there was also some other things that happened. The right stuff was another movie. And then we, of course we had the challenger, the space shuttle in 86 that uh, lost the lives of so many. It just really, I really seemed to sink into a desire, like you said, to be an astronaut and to try that. I've always kind of run, I've ran toward competition in my mm-hmm. life. And I don't know, I really don't know why, because it's, it scares, it still scares the shit out of me. Well, you're a competitive person. It's kind of what naturally pulls you. My sister's the same way. I'm the opposite. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I don't think, cause I've been told my whole life, like, oh, maybe you're afraid of it. It doesn't ignite me. Like it yeah. doesn't make me excited. I kind of just want to know why we're competing. Why is this person here? Like they're bothering me to be honest. <laughs> and like, there's too many things to pay attention to. So I've always run towards tackling everything by myself right? because I don't trust anyone else either. Right. So like, I'm not a team girl. <laughs> right. Probably why in a relationship I have to be like actively team, a teammate of Joe because yeah. I don't like teams because every team I've ever been on, I'm like, what are you, what is going on? Like 10 people are on the team. Three of them are stupid. The other three of them are not capable. The other three of them, I'm like, I don't understand teams. And I think that's why I've always run away from competition, but you need that competitive edge to be a fighter pilot and to be an athlete. Yeah. And I want to be, I want to be fair to your audience, be fair and, and truthful to your audience. We had three kids. And the middle child uh, was a, a college and professional athlete. We have a son who's on his way, we think, to being a college athlete with pro prospects, hopefully for him in the future, if it's what he wants to do. Peyton is probably the most athletically gifted of all of them. And she is amazingly fast. You wouldn't believe how fast she was as a little kid and sprinting and strong. I mean, and not, coordinated. not quick. I want to be clear. I'm so <laughs> lanky. I wasn't the quickest. But once you got going. Fast. You were fast, 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 fast. So I don't know why competition still scares the crap out of me, but it, it also is exciting because the outcome is undetermined. Mm -hmm. You have a part in that determination Mm -hmm. and that's, that's fun. Yeah, (laughs) that is fun. That's how I feel about my job because I looked at my life coming out of college and was like, I could do anything, anything. Yeah. And I was like, I'm single, I'm capable, I'm educated. I have my family backing me. If anyone's going to do anything, it's going to be me. Right. I don't like bureaucracy and things like that. That makes me excited to be like, wow, instead of being afraid of that and what comes with all of that freedom, sure. it's more like, well, shit, I could do anything I want. I could move to Paris and change my name and become a different person if I wanted to. And that's where my fear comes in, kind of embracing the unknown, but being so afraid, which it triggers that excitement. Right. Kind of. Yeah. It's the exact same feeling you're explaining mm-hmm. is what I think some of us feel toward. Competition. Yeah, competing and, and putting yourself out there in, it doesn't have to be athletic way, mm-hmm. it can be in a business sense, it could be in a relationship sense. Well, those sense. are the best people in the, at what they do. I mean, I look at businessmen, they're just competitive. Uh, yeah. Joe obviously isn't really competitive. And I, I asked him, I'm like, why is this something you want to be competitive about? He's like, I just want to be competitive in general. And right. I'm like, I don't want to work on winning this because I don't care about this. Right. So like, why do you care about this so much? He's like, no, I just want to win in general. I'm like, point blank. There you go. I don't, I wish I had it because, but now I know how, what makes me feel that energy and excitement. Yeah. It, it helps that I can apply it to something else. It's just more the unknown is what I apply it to. And I think this, I think you got a good point. I know we need to go on, but I think to grasp that and understand what is your fuel. Everybody has a different fuel source. You know, we all have kind of the same engine. We all have, you know, arms and legs and a brain and eyeballs to see and, and, you know, look at the world, but your fuel is the most important thing. And people go through a whole life. I have friends, I've got a close friend who just hasn't found his fuel 
and it and you kind of sputter around and you you know you do well and you can be very happy i think but when you find that fuel man things line up yeah and, and things start getting crazy well you get lucky when you find it i will say i grew up in a family that everyone is incredibly competitive and that's like the ultimate thing you can be if you're competitive that's like being you know confident or being strong or being disciplined it was a very important skill to have and a celebrated kind of feeling yeah and for me i never felt it so it took me getting out of our home yeah and me naturally going through life the way that I wanted to. And I always felt bad my whole life because I was like, I'm not like, what are they talking about? Like, I, I don't get it. That's why I was a gymnast forever. I was all about perfection and focusing on myself and being my, in my own little zone. I didn't want to look left and right and see other people. And usually if someone else is doing something, right. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else than this person because they're already doing something. Like, I don't want to be at this same eye to eye with them right now. And it took me a while to find that. And I think that's something important to call out in the very beginning. Yeah. Because there's a lot of questions kind of about motivation, right. getting out of a rut. And I think a lot of it is going to boil down to finding your fuel and working with what motivates you in general. Yeah. One your the, structure. One of the keys to life, I think is important. Yeah. yeah. Me too. So after college, you go into pilot training? Yep. Okay. Yep. One year. It's in Del Rio. Well, you can go, there's five or six places. At least back then there were Del Rio, Texas, not much to do, but do that. You know, it's a good place for that because it's, there's not a lot of distraction. I was dating your mother. We were, you know, talking, we're getting more serious in the relationship toward engagement and marriage and those things. Uh, that was my distraction, which was well needed because you can't just completely just do one thing. I mean, it's crazy. Burned yeah. out. But that's a year and it's, that is the epitome of competition. Because you have, at that time, the Air Force was kind of drawing down. It was this 1992 time frame. So Desert Storm had almost come and gone. So we'd invade, you know, the, the Iraqi war basically had been fought and was pretty much over, at least on the air, the air side. And it was still a, you know, 10-year occupation and, and trying to stabilize governments for the next decade. But so you had 45, 50 pilots mm. from various places, Air Force Academy, other universities, you know, the civilian places all over the country. And you're there for a year. And at that time, if you wanted to fly a fighter, which I think of the 40, 45 kids, young men, officers in the process, I think all of them, but one or two didn't, you know, they wanted to fly fighters. So the competition, you knew you probably had to finish number one in the yeah. class or number two in the class just to have a shot at it. And so, so you're saying that most, the majority of people didn't become a fighter pilot yeah. and, and flight school. Yeah. There was only, it was in my class, there were just two okay. that did. And it was, it just was competitive. I mean, everything was, it was every, and again, I didn't come from a family. A lot of these kids I showed up at pilot training with grew up with families whose dads or moms were mm -hmm. pilots in the military or civilian. They grew up flying little airplanes and, you know, having airplanes as, as actually owned airplanes, 12 hours in a Cessna 150 that mm -hmm. I thought as a college student, I go, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to one, make sure I like it and I don't get sick, you know, air sick and, mm -hmm. and have all the, the physiological problems. So I, I saved up enough money to rent a plane for 12 and an instructor for 12 hours and, and at least have an idea of what's going on. Yeah. So I felt, you know, going into it, I felt like I was walking you know, into a gunfight with a knife, you know, mm -hmm. or at least a, maybe even just a, like a stick, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I just had a whole experience, but the program is built that way to where 
you have to have the skills, you know, to be able to see something and react to it and, and not overreact. Mm-hmm. You have to fly a decent airplane, but there's a lot of being able to cope with pressure and stress and, yeah. and competition, which is what I think sports really helped me, being an athlete helped me because I've been there before, just in other arenas mm-hmm. when it comes to the but competition you weren't side. super intimidated. It was kind of no. the thing that, again, fueled you yeah. and you stepped into the perfect place to be a person with that skill. Pilot training is is the basics. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, but it's, it's difficult because they throw a bunch of information at you. You, you learn the T-37 and the T-38, two airplanes that you fly back in those days. The T-37 or the Tweet was, what to me was the fastest airplane in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it went, it went 200 miles an hour, you know, and that the airplane I learned in or learned quote, unquote, mm-hmm. 12 hours, you know, went 60 miles an hour. But looking back on it. That's ground speed, right? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. Yeah, ground speed. It's not, it's not actually, that's yeah. gr- only ground speed. <laughs> but pilot training was the very basics of that. And, and you, you get a hold of that real quick. Some do. And then, mm-hmm. and then once you get the T-37 down, you move to T-38, which really was a fast airplane. It was over Mach 1. It was a, it was a supersonic airplane. Mm-hmm. So your mind just has to work a little bit, fa- well, a lot faster. Yeah. Faster than the speed of sound kind of fast. Yeah. 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 10 miles a minute is what it would do. So you're, you're thinking ahead of things, you know. So pilot training itself was just like instrument flying and, and doing loops and landing and taking off, you know, successfully, hopefully. You leave pilot training at this point? Yep. When was I born in all of this? Were you already after F-15 training? So you were born in, in 93 and we had just finished pilot training and we'd moved to Florida and I got a fighter out of pilot training, but they didn't have a spot for me right then. So mm-hmm. I had to wait a while until that spot came open. And you chose the F-15 or the, they choose the F-15 I for chose you. it, yeah. I, I had an opportunity to fly a different fighter immediately. F-16? No, it was an F-111, mm-hmm. which looking mm-hmm. back, it wouldn't have been a bad job. I'd have been in Clovis, New Mexico, where you, you would have been born in Clovis, mm-hmm. which there just wasn't a lot going on in Clovis. Not that we wanted a lot going on as a young married couple, yeah. but Florida seemed very tempting, uh, especially Panama City area. It was beautiful. Um, it was outside, awesome, yeah. yeah. So I chose to wait and, and your mom was kind of happy with that because we got, she and I got to spend more time than normally we would have gotten to spend, especially with having a, a child very early. Mm-hmm. And well, at so, this yeah. point you're 25, mom is yeah. 21 when she had me Yeah, yep. and we've moved to Florida. Mom, my yep. mom was out also at Texas A&M. I also yep. went to Texas A&M. My sister also <laughs> went to Texas A&M. My parents met and then my mom ended up leaving A&M because she got pregnant with me and my dad was getting but, moved to Florida. Yeah, I got stationed. Florida. In Florida. Yeah. So you were stationed in Panama City first mm-hmm. and my dad started flying the F-15, which is definitely my favorite plane, obviously, because I'm nostalgic, but also because it's just kind of the coolest plane ever. So cool. And I feel like it's more rare that a pilot gets to fly or gets the opportunity to yeah. fly an F-15. That's like pretty much like the top of the top in terms of being a pilot. So you chose an F-15 and you were willing to wait for the F-15. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so sick. It's like a big plane. It's the radar is amazing. What are the specialties of the F-15 that like, make it so great? Well, now, like now with all the technology, you look back and you go, wow, that wasn't all that great. Yeah. But back At the then, time, yeah, yeah. In 1990, <laughs> the biggest thing, there were just not many of them because it's, it's, its role was really specific. The F-15 was supposed to be and was the air superiority fighter. So all it did, all mm-hmm. our mission was, was just to make the skies safe over where the U.S. was operating. So you were the first ones in. First one's in, last one's out, and you don't let anybody drop a, a bomb 
or a missile on any of our good guys or mm-hmm. gals that are down there doing, you know, doing their job. So air superiority was the role and, and it was just really good at it. It had a, it was, it was really fast. So I got one, one day I got one up to Mach 2.23, which was the fastest I've ever personally been, but over twice the speed of sound. Mm-hmm. And because it was fast, it could launch a missile a long way because mm-hmm. that, you know, the speed the airplane's going and you launch a missile with it just additive to the missile. And so it had a long range stick, a big stick. Mm-hmm. It had a great radar, which mm-hmm. could see everything out there and could make one of the big things about radar. Not only can you detect things at a long range, but if there are, let's say there are two airplanes or maybe four or six flying close together, can the airplane give you the resolution to, to see all two, three, four or six airplanes? And mm-hmm. if, if so, then you could shoot mm-hmm. all two, three or four or six airplanes with different missiles, which was, that was especially the F-15. It could, it was a force multiplier. So mm-hmm. you, you could be in one airplane and you could theoretically engage six, eight targets at a time. Yeah. Which was It kind of reminds me of how, I mean, on the ground, obviously, special ops works where SEALs go in first and get jobs mm-hmm. done and they're in and out. No one even knew they were there. And that's what that 15 kind of reminds me of is yeah. like, you're, you're in first, you figure it out and you're the first line and yeah. you are the one that you're so good at it that almost sometimes people don't even know that there's yeah. an F-15 waiting for them there too, which is pretty crazy. And then after the F-15 thing, I, I was born in Panama City. Yep. Uh, at Tyndall. At Tyndall Air Force base Base hospital. Your mom was on a metal <laughs> operating table. No epidural. <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> and then uh, I would say, what, two years later, we moved to Destin, Florida, Eglin uh-huh. Air Force Base. My yep. sister was born on that Air Force Base. Yep. So I grew up in the Panhandle until I was about eight. We moved back and forth between Panama City and Destin. And my childhood was the white sandy beaches, the clear water. At one point we lived in a condo and you could hear off the bay, the fighter pilots out there. But it was a really interesting way to have my like kind of basis of life mm-hmm. created because that's the lens at which I saw the world. So after that, how many tours did you do in the F-15? Uh, so after Tyndall, which was training, I did... Eglin, which were, that's where Riley was born, obviously. And that was about three years, a little over three years. And then I went back to Tyndall to instruct. And so two complete tours and then got out and started flying the F-16 in the Texas Air Guard. Got back home yeah. in Texas. So we decided, I mean, you decided you were going to take a step back from active duty. What parts were you overseas for when I was young like that? Yeah. So when we were at Eglin, when it, my first operational tour, remember Desert Storm 1 was mm-hmm. in 91. And then 10 years later, Desert Storm 2. So in between the 10 years, and this is kind of a hot topic too these days, there, yeah. were, we, there were a lot of no-fly zones. The NATO stood up a no-fly mm-hmm. zone in Iraq, in the northern Iraq area, in the southern. And one was called Northern Watch, the south one, Southern Watch, and was deployed three, I think, three times total there. And a deployment is about three months mm-hmm. each. Maybe it was four. I don't really remember, but I was in Saudi Arabia a lot. And then it was in Turkey once for the Northern Watch, but we were gone a lot uh, yeah. because they, they needed us, you know, talked about, it's like a buzzword, the F-15, what it was good at was the word we used back then. I always thought it was kind of a weird word, but mm-hmm. it was, it's kind of neat to think about it, but we sanitized the area, you know, now with COVID sanitizing, it's yeah. a whole different meaning, but <laughs> we would go into a airspace and completely clean it out of anything that was flying that mm-hmm. we didn't want flying. Yeah. And, and that was our role. And mm-hmm. that was the, the unique part about it is we're the only airplane at that time that did it. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way to put 
we sanitize the airspace. It's Northern Watch. <laughs> You're it's like, very military. Everyone's like, <laughs> okay, that's really scary. <laughs> it's a little creepy. Okay. So then we went into, you know, we moved to Houston. I was around eight then. Mm-hmm. And yep. we were trying to basically avoid moving so much. I think we were going to yeah. move across overseas at that point, mm-hmm. uh, maybe to Japan. I was that we were talking about our journey. Yeah, I was getting to the point where I had to make a choice. There was an opportunity to go to the Air Force's version of the top Top Gun School, which is called a fighter weapon school. Like to attend or instruct? To attend it. Okay. And then and then probably I, I would have wanted to stay and instruct. So I found that I really I enjoyed the teaching part of it mm-hmm. more than I ever thought that I would. Uh, but it was a really big fork we were going to take because that, that was another long six to eight year commitment and a mm-hmm. big time commitment. Just me being not only gone, but when I was home, being uh, very tied to the squadron's duties of, of going to war. Uh, and then the other fork was to go to Houston, get back to Texas and, and, you know, be closer to family. Uh, my dad at the time, he wasn't ill, mm-hmm. but he, he wasn't in great health. And I definitely want to get closer to, to him. And then my brother and a mom and, and then Lawrence, you know, our, my wife's parents, your mom's parents, yeah. just, it was a good opportunity and an opportunity came up in Houston to be an alert pilot. Because that was the time after 9-11, you know, of course, the, the buildings and the, the bombing there of the, of the World Trade Center, the U.S. stood up all these alert facilities to make sure that wouldn't happen again. And Houston needed an alert guy. And I gladly jumped into that position. So my dad switched planes. He went to the F-16 so we could essentially we could move. And this is honestly, I think we were moving around a little after 9-11 happened. So we we thought you know, you're entering the Air National Guard, you're not going to, you're going to stay at home. 9-11 happens, of course. And then they go back to the Middle East. You went back to the Middle East in F-16, yeah. like what, Tol- two or three times? Yeah, to- yeah, totally different role too. I went from sanitizing the area, mm-hmm. the airspace to our job in the F-16 was to drop bombs and protect our troops on the ground by dropping bombs. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't so much a sanitizing the airspace. It was now taking taking bad guys away from hurting our people on the ground. Well, also what's funny, I mean, were you ever jealous of F-15 pilots when you were in the Middle East with them? Were you ever looking at them like, No, you know what? Because you would think I would be be jealous. But the thing was, is in the F-15, by the time I got in it, all the fun had been had. You know, Mm -hmm. all the MiGs, there were 19 MiG MiG kills in Desert Storm 1. Yeah. And in the 10 years between, there were zero because the Iraqis were one, out of airplanes. And Mm -hmm. two, they the ones they had, they didn't want to lose. And they knew we were going to, we would shoot them down. So they didn't fly as much. The people were afraid of the F-15. They were very afraid. Yeah. But they got in the F-16 and those were, I, I realized that's the people that are actually getting to do the work and getting to do what they trained to do. And so the F-16 did drop a lot of bombs and it did do a lot of strafing and do a lot of actual, what you would recognize as combat sorties. Because yeah. when I flew a combat sortie in the F-15, it was like it involved eight hours of flying in an oval pattern and then going to a tanker to get gas. Mm-hmm. And the F-16 combat meant you cleaned your rails off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you dropped everything you had and then went back for more and got more. Yeah, that's what you imagine in like war movies yeah. is that F-16. Yeah. What's crazy to me is a lot of the time the most respected planes are the ones you never know about or never yeah. see and you don't know what's going on in a sense, like a special forces kind of thing. It's very low key. It's kind of more secretive, which is the power of those kinds of things right. to get it ready for those combat mm-hmm. moments. So that happened. And then you ended up getting out. I was 12, I think when you got out um, yeah. of so, the military. Yep. Yeah. So 
Well, let's go back to sitting alert real quick so we can yeah. talk about that. Um, that I remember going to the <laughs> alert shack all the time on base. And um, that was in Houston. We would go visit my dad because you'd be there for what? Like, yeah, so I'd work, I'd work three days in a row. Mm-hmm. So three 24-hour shifts in a row. And so they you, live, would, you live there, basically. Yeah, they live on this little shack and they have the planes <laughs> outside. And it's, I think, two guys usually, right? It's two pilots yeah. and uh, two crew chiefs and then a, a tech of some sort, radar, weapons. And five, you're protecting the southern border yeah, of the U.S. Yeah, you're part of the NORAD system, the southeast air defense sector. Yeah. So you, like, essentially, if, um, let's say, a, a plane comes into that area and doesn't identify itself yeah. properly. So... When you sit alert, there are two airplanes ready to go. We call them hot cock. So they are, everything is ready to go. All you have to do is get them, start them up and go. Mm-hmm. And the time from alert, klaxon to wheels up, that I think that's probably still classified. They don't want people saying that, but mm-hmm. it was a short time. Yeah. So basically, I think also you told me a lot about the kinds of planes you were encountering. There yeah. were times where it'd be maybe someone carrying drugs into the U.S. or yeah. something and yeah. you'd essentially go up lights out and get the tail number of the plane yeah. and then essentially just report it to authorities Try. and they yeah. would so imagine you're flying like a little plane <laughs> and there's actually two u.s fighter pilots behind you completely dark like you can't see them or sense them yeah. and they're just trailing behind you and then they just go back home and there's police waiting for well, you yeah. when you land surprise <laughs> yeah that's and that's hard to do especially at night because you don't want to alert the pilot because then mm-hmm. he, he's going to go off and do something and you know, maybe land somewhere else but we would we call it the mission was to quote shadow, mm-hmm. which is kind of another cool term. Shadow. Well, that's when your um your good vision came in. Yeah, my and, dad had twenty fifteen vision. Yeah, and night at night's hard to retell numbers, but we had yeah. these things called night vision goggles, which are so cool, oh, and it yeah, turns sure. night into day, and mm-hmm. you can see everything. So yeah, yep. So you got out of the military after all of this. Mm-hmm. We ended up moving to Fort Worth, Texas. My dad started working for Southwest Airlines. So if you fly Southwest, especially out of Dallas, just know. A lot of those guys are not only wearing their Aggie rings, but <laughs> my dad will walk around the, the airport and be like, oh, hey. And they're a bunch of old, essentially F-15 and F-16 yeah, it's pilots. Yeah, reunion, wherever we go. Yeah, it's like these guys are, that old dorky pilot who's flying your plane is yeah. like, he was been once, a really sick <laughs> He was once pilot. a really badass dude. <laughs> like he now was, he's just yeah. gray and looks goofy and fat. Now he's just being like <laughs> telling dad jokes on the loudspeaker. Awful bad jokes. So we're going to get into some questions and I kind of, separated these out to where they make sense all together. There were many repeat questions. So I just kind of worded them to include the questions if there were close ones. And I thought we'd start with more career-based questions first. So the first question is, how did you know that you wanted to be a fighter pilot? We kind of answered this Mm -hmm. when we're talking about becoming a fighter pilot, because essentially this person is kind of saying like, how do I know what kind of career is right for me? Yeah. Good question. And, And I don't know if you, I don't, you just get lucky. And my dad said this because he, he was, I have a, I have a younger brother who didn't know really what he wanted to do until much later in life. But my dad always said, if you know what you want to do from a very young age and you're pretty certain that's what you want to do and you kind of feel it, that it's a fit, you're blessed. Mm-hmm. He says, you're already way ahead. And then I had a, a real close friend who said, if your avocation, meaning your hobbies or your hobby, is this is the same or actually is your vocation, then you're blessed. Mm-hmm. And that's so true for me is, and again, I stumbled into it. I, you know, NFL quarterback, plan A, mm-hmm. plan, plan B, something competitive. Oh my gosh, Top Gun or oh my gosh, you know, the, the uh, movie, the right stuff. 
okay, I think that's where I want to compete in that arena. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, it, it wasn't that moment. I can't go back and say, oh, that's when it was. I could just say, it, I just fell into it. Once plan A shut the door, plan B was going to happen because I didn't have a plan C. Mm-hmm. It was just B. And I had to make that work because again, kind of go back to where I came from. I, I had to make one of those two plans work and I just got lucky. Well, it's also, again, what kind of lit you up. I think in, for me with my job, had I not explored other options than what I told, hey, you're going to be good at this. You should yeah. do it, being a lawyer. And I look back at that every day and I, I see, you know, friends and people who I know who are lawyers. I'm yeah. like, shit, I would have been really good at that. You'd been really good at it. But I, it wasn't what ignited me. I think after I went to college for right. poli-sci, I studied mm-hmm. government, I studied sociology. I just started becoming very disillusioned. And when I lost that kind of naive feeling that I could create justice in the world because you don't really have that much control um, in a system that's that big and that powerful. I lost that part of it. And instead of just being like, well, I've been wanting to be a lawyer since I was 12 and I really would be good at it. Instead of doing that and doing what everyone wanted me to do, which was go that route and do something that had already been, yeah, Mm -hmm. drawn out for me. You know, parents want their kids to be doctors and lawyers. I understand our gener, right. our your generation of parents wants that. Yeah. Your your parents' generation wanted that, and I think had I done that, with I think a lot of people do that, even if they lose the luster early on, they're like, well, I already committed so much time and energy to wanting this. And my biggest thing was I was really happy that I tried something new, and I did something that I just enjoyed and kind of took up a hobby. And then for me, that's when I realized I wanted to do it, and I was able to kind of have a mitigated risk moment when I went out to LA and interned and was like, I'm going to dip my toe in this and see, cause yeah. I was ahead in school and I was just like able to do it. And it was risky cause I was missing, you know, I was going to be a little bit behind when I got back, but I had to try. Yeah. And I feel like the biggest thing you can do for yourself is even if you feel tied to something, cause everyone around you wanted you to do that or expected you to do that, or has been talking about it, it's been amped up your whole life. Right. You can't just, you know, move towards that thing because of the background that you or your family has right. doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to move towards what you want because at the end of the day, it's your life and yeah. it's going to, you you just got to focus on and honor what you enjoy. I think. Well, I think the question was, was answered and, and you know, how did yeah. you fall into that career? How did you find that career? But let's take that point because I think it's important if I can, are you okay with talking yeah. a little bit about this? So yeah, your story is very different. I think your path that you forged ahead because it was unconventional. You know, I, remember, I always tell everyone when they ask me, you know, inevitably when you fly with people and I go on a job and a trip in Southwest, I'll fly with a, a young first officer or, a, you know, an older first officer and you talk about your kids and, mm-hmm. and they ask, what do they, what do they do? And I say, well, my oldest is an influencer. And they look at me like, because they're, they're my age. Yeah. Like, what is that? How does that, how is that a job? Mm-hmm. And so when I describe it over the years, I've been now doing this 18 years in the commercial business, commercial airline business. That makes me feel really old. Uh, makes me feel really old, especially okay. when I'm flying with kids that are young, yeah, just starting out. But when I describe your path, it's just, it becomes more remarkable every time. And I always tell the story that you relate to us about your education at, at your high school, your middle school, yeah. elementary school. I went to a really amazing, yeah. at one point after we were done with the military, we moved to a little bit of a ritzier place yeah. and I was put into a school that was built for kids 
honestly, if you didn't have my kind of mindset, it felt like a normal school. Mm -hmm. But if you had my brain and the kids that that were like me, it was something that fostered independence and it fostered, you know, you were supposed to have your own path and you're supposed to be confident in your own skill and taking it into the world and doing something different. I mean, you know, they do the typical thing every time you graduate, they're like, all the jobs y'all are going to have are not invented now. And that's what you said. And we are, y'all are going to invent them. And it, yeah. for me sitting in the audience, there's some people that are like, oh, all right. right, me and my friends, my friend Emily, everyone were like, okay. Like um, there was nothing about right. it that we were like, oh, seems like a lot. We were just right. like, oh well, yeah, obviously. And the school built that into my mind. Yeah. I think if someone who was more competitive or more interested in kind of being excellent at mm-hmm. something, it's a different kind of brain. Because yeah. I think that if you're like that, maybe that school wouldn't have hit you as hard. You know, you would have been like, well, I'm just like going to school and maybe it wasn't as good in physics or it wasn't as good as in this. Yep. But it just, it was the opposite of regimented. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. independence. It, and it unlocked your world and unlocked mm-hmm. your potential. And, and didn't, it didn't paint you in this box of Peyton is going to be a lawyer or a, no. a doctor or a, you could be who you wanted to be on your timeline. Mm-hmm. Which is and if that, was by really the way, cool. was a lawyer, they said, that's fine. <laughs> a lot of kids' parents... <laughs> had like they uh, had their own law firms and they mm-hmm. were doctors or they, some of them, you know, one of our classmates owned hospitals. These people were like next level though. They're like yeah. sports teams owners yeah. and things like that. But I went to A&M after that, which to me was more for people who wanted competition, who wanted excellence, yeah. who were like, here's the set of things I need to do. And I'm going to be the fucking best at yeah, it. Traditional. And I remember going to A&M and I had so many out of body experiences where I'd be walking to class and there's so many kids around me walking. And I would just picture all of them walking through little tubes to go to their direct new future. And they're all lined up, lined up. And there was something visually about that, that I would, I would go on campus and be like, I'm so freaked out. And then I was studying sociology. So you're studying the psychology of groups Uh and you're just like, Oh my God, this is, you're studying politics and you're understanding the the foundation of all of this and state schools Mm -hmm. too. You're like, this is, I don't know. It was, I felt like I was, I mean, on psychedelics and normal life. I was like, what is going on around me? But, my private school education in high school was probably the best thing that ever happened yeah, to me I, I agree beyond. And it was way harder than college, to be honest, yeah. which I think the challenge was good. Yeah. It was really good, but it challenged my whole worldview. And I think that that laid the foundation for allowing me to try new things that worked for me. So when I, when I thought, okay, what do I want to do? I didn't think, all right, I need to be the best at this. It was more like, what do I want to do? Like right. what makes me happy every day? And now I sit in my apartment every day by myself. I don't think about one other person. There's some competition in what I do, but I don't ever feel it. Like people will be like, well, she did this and she did this and right. she copied me. And, did, and I'm like, yeah. that never occurred to me a single time. If someone copied yeah. me on something, I, I don't, it doesn't come into my mind that that's a bad thing right. or that I need to do it better. Yeah. You're, you know, it's, it's a true essence of an innovator. Someone who's, who's a, uh, and you know, these days everybody points to Elon Musk and he's kind of the same way. I mean, yes, he's ultra competitive. He has, here's the thing. I think he's both. And I think the really good people are, are both. I'm more like I steer away from it because it just stresses me out for no reason. But the people who are both and who can find the fuel in both of those things, I think that makes, and who can see things structurally from a bird's eye perspective, right? which is an understanding essentially of sociology and people. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful thing, but I think that you need to know again, what we said was what fuels you. And then you need to have the ability to risk because of course you could have gone to pilot training and failed. Yeah. And you wasted time and you wasted some money and that's a mitigated risk. You're like, oh, I think I'm not going to fail, but I have to take the risk and you're never going to do anything you want to do without risking. I risked all of my time in my twenties. So it's amounted to nothing. Yeah. You know, luckily for me, I was helped 
monetarily. Like I knew I was never going to go hungry. So I wasn't like trying to fend for myself. I did pay for most of my stuff in my earlier 20s after leaving college. But I knew the reason it was mitigated is because I wasn't going to starve. Right. I don't know what I would have done if I, you know, if I didn't have the family backing to be like, you can try this for a few years, but we're not going to just give you money for years and let you just live in Los Angeles. Like you need to make something of this as soon as possible. Well, and I don't know who said this, but the enemy of great is good. And what I mean by that, and I didn't say it, I just read it and there's a book on it. I think it was published in the fifties or Mm sixties, but if you're good at something or you have a good life, for instance, which you did as Mm -hmm. a, as a young you know, person growing up and you have things, you have friends and you have things around you that you like doing and you're happy. Most people tend not to be great because in order to be great, truly great at Mm -hmm. things like Elon, you have to risk the good. And what your mom and I are very proud of you in the sense of you risk the good. I mean, you had a good life in Fort Worth. You had a good life in Texas. You were going to have a good life in whatever you chose to do. And law school. school, Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great profession, but it was, it's good. Right. But you weren't, you weren't happy with that or you weren't, you didn't feel motivated to follow through with that. Mm -hmm. And so you risked the good. I mean, you, you had to struggle Mm -hmm. and that was a great, it was hard to see you struggle from a parent. You know, you want to provide everything you want to, you know, you want to give, 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 but really sometimes the best giving in this parental advice, maybe to a younger audience, but you know, at some point, the, one of the greatest loving gestures is to not give. Mm-hmm. And to let them struggle in a, in a safe environment. Well, yeah, still. that's it. Always was safe, and that's why I always go back to mitigated risk. I think mm-hmm. that's the thing in business too. People take mitigated risks. You're going to have to risk something. Yep. Um, I always get the question of, "What do you do?" For example, if I want to go on YouTube, but I'm too scared, and I'm like, "Yeah, so is everyone." <laughs> yeah. Like, you just get in front. Of, like, do it when you're afraid. The only yep. like, it's never going to not be scary. You have to do it when you're afraid. And one of my favorite things ever in the world, my favorite feelings is that feeling of weightlessness when you do something for the first time or you try something for the first time that really fucking scares you because you don't know how it's going to end. And that's an incredible feeling. And I wish that feeling on everyone. I want everyone to feel that feeling. It makes you feel alive. Like you're really engaging in your life. I think for most of my childhood into high school and to college, I wasn't engaging in my life like that. And when I moved out to LA and there was a risk involved, it was everyone was looking at me like, what the fuck are you doing with your life? And I'm like, I'm going to have to make this work. And I, in my head, never had, a, I never yeah. planned or made a kind of uh, plan or an exit strategy right. for it because I knew yeah. it was going to happen. I was, yeah. there was, no one was going to work harder than me at that. Yep. And every, I was going to be the best for me, maybe yep. not better than everyone else, but I was going to make a lot of money. Yeah. And I knew it. There was something about me that I just, I knew it. I did, wasn't like a question. Right. I wasn't the kind of person to ask someone, Hey, how did you not fear this? It was just more like, all right, let's, let's get going. Right. We, I moved to LA, you didn't even walk at graduation. I was so antsy to get out there. I remember. And I, I was driving <laughs> your car with a U-Haul to LA. I was like, all right, they dropped me off. And I'm like, bye, <laughs> see you never. And then I just. I'm like, what have we done? Yeah, I was, I was ready to go. And I think yeah. that you have to find things that fuel you like that. But the real way you do that is trying things, risking things, yep. going towards what makes you feel good. And if you don't want to do something, if you know you don't want to do yeah. something, if it's important to you, you owe it to yourself yep. to try something else. Yeah. Risk the good to be great. It's, that's a good, and your story exemplifies that. And if you try enough stuff, you'll get lucky enough yeah. to find what you want. Like it's <laughs> experimentation at the end of the day. Uh-huh. Okay. So are there any mental tricks you've learned to overcome fear? No, because I'm still scared of snakes. Mm-hmm. I'm crazy scared of snakes. I've tried to overcome that. We have that. like a phobia. Yeah, I mean, people bad. are afraid. Of like snakes, I make your, when I see a snake, I make your mom has to kill it. I yeah. won't. I won't even be in the same like area code as mm-hmm. a snake. 
So mm-hmm. that's how bad. There are not any snakes in here either. <laughs> There's not. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so again, always take it back, I guess, to the flying is kind of where we want to go. Well, yeah, at least absolutely. the combat stuff too. The fear, you have it all the time. Like you said, you're always scared when you do something you're not sure you're going to make it or you're not sure that you're good at. But what I found the best way that works for me is the same thing that works for you because you just said it is preparation and outworking everybody. And it's very common in people, I think, that do jobs, whether it's, you know, risking everything to be uh, what they want to be or just something that they're uncomfortable with. But you have to prepare beyond what you even think is a normal level or a level for you. So for me to get through pilot training and, and finish high enough to get a chance to fly a fighter or I just didn't want to be a fighter pilot. I just like, oh, I'm an F-15 pilot. Great. I can mm-hmm. wear the patch. No, I wanted to be the best one ever. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of looking back, it's kind of kind of a weird thought, but, but I, I think mean, that's you're like wired a, that if way. If you shoot for the moon, you'll land among the stars kind of thing yeah. where you're like, you're just kind of yeah. like, I'm going to do this. Even if you don't become the best ever, yeah. you're really up there. Right. And part of the whole process is just the preparation for it. You're still going to be nervous and, and, and scared when you strap on the airplane and go out and, and fly a sortie, whether it be training or combat. But you're so prepared. I remember getting into, when I was in F-15 training, there's one sortie, it's one mission that kind of, if you pass that one sortie, you have a really good chance of not washing out and going on with the program. I remember strapping into the airplane in that particular sortie. It's you versus another an instructor pilot. And you're, you're starting off on the defensive side. He's behind you. And your goal is to not get killed, you know, mm-hmm. simulated killed. And it was a very high washout ride, very highly busted ride. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember getting the airplane and being nervous the night before, you know, not being able to eat, you know, having kind of the upset stomach and not sleeping well, and then getting into the squadron that day and being nervous in the briefing. And, and but once you got in the airplane and once you, you know, the canopy came down and people experience this, a lot of your listeners will as well. It's just an overwhelming calmness. And when you feel that come over you mm-hmm. in a stressful environment, you know, you're prepared. It's, it's the times when you don't study enough for the test or you don't prepare enough for a meeting or something to where the chaos, when the canopy comes down, mm-hmm. you feel a little still restless and, you know, yeah. I'm not quite as prepared. And I never wanted, I never wanted anything I could do, any preparation or any, any knowledge or any advanced training before an event limit me or be the reason why I didn't succeed. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be on me to fail. I wanted it to be an external factor if something yeah. happened. That's a good one. I also, um, I feel like the only thing I tell people all the time that made me good at my job is, is wanting to know everything about everything. So yeah. people are like, how did you learn? How did you research your job? How, what do you mean by when you, you said you researched and you read all night? I mean, I Googled how to be an influencer. And then I went from there and read every single article about every single facet of the job yeah. for hours and hours to the point where I couldn't sleep. I was up till 3 a.m. because I just didn't want to stop learning about website design and building a newsletter and new stuff on Instagram right. and new stuff on YouTube and teaching myself editing and teaching myself. You know, when the podcast happened, I did everything myself for the podcast too. I always do everything myself, which makes me comfortable with research, you know, because if I don't have this whole setup, if I don't have a sound engineer or anything, I can do this already on my phone mic if yeah. I want to because I started there. Like I already did all that stuff. And so I'm now comfortable when I walk into a, a setting like this, which yeah. could be somewhat, even it's just us, it's kind of intimidating. Or when I'm yeah. a guest on a podcast, I'm like, 
I'm actually calm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's going out sometimes podcast, when I'm a guest, it goes out to millions of people on these bigger shows. And I'm like, why am I, I'm not nervous anymore. Right. I, I know my shit. I'm comfortable. Yep. It's a different kind of fear, obviously, because your fear would be in that situation more physical too. Like you want to make sure you're not yeah. only you're succeeding, but you're not, you know, crashing into the ground yeah, <laughs> or anything. Good. Is that bad? <laughs> um, yeah, not, not great. So I think that that's a really good one. Preparation is. That's the key. And remaining calm. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing though, because my thing was, okay, just remain calm in it and act like you've been here before, you know, get yourself confident. But I didn't really think about the thing that leads to that calm, mm-hmm. which would be the preparation. So if you're doing something, learn everything about it possible. That's another thing. Like all my friends who are wealthy and incredibly successful in business, they don't, only know everything about their own business, but they know everything about everything. Like my, my guy friends who make a ton of money, they know everything ever. I'm like, okay, well. <laughs> well, then that's, that's part of this being a guy. You think you know everything and you'll just make stuff up. Well, and- they just know information. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like quizzing them. So like, what about this? And they like, they know all the information. Make sure you fact check them. Yeah. We're, we're not as smart as we sometimes I mean, yeah. ourselves. You can, you be. can, whenever someone's <laughs> successful in business, I'm like, okay, I trust you kind of. Yep. Um, but knowledge is really the key to everything. So the more you know, it's just going to be easier for you to yeah. you succeed at literally anything. You could apply that to any job that you have. And it, and it takes work. It's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's not given to you. It's not simple. You have to, like well, said, no you one have can, to, when people, to know it. Yeah. When, when people come and ask me how to be an influencer, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, well, I've been doing this for six years. It's been a fucking every single day thing. Unless oh, yeah. I was like having a drunk fun day with my friends on a Saturday. But the next day, by the way, on those days, my friends are all influencers. We're talking about being influencers. <laughs> under the influence. Yeah, under the influence. We, <laughs> that's a dad joke. Sorry. We, <laughs> we, um, I immersed myself in that world so much and I learned everything over the course of six years. So it's hard for yeah. me to answer that question sometimes with people. And I'm like, first of all, just fucking figure it. Like, yeah. if you're going to ask me, you're already losing. Go figure it out yourself. You have to self-educate or you have to educate, you know, through school, things like that that you go to. But your your six years of work for a normal person is like 12 years Mm -hmm. of work for yeah, because of the amount of time. And again, you eat, sleep, drink, live this stuff. And and the same was the same in my business as well. And, and, you know, your mother, that's how she raised her children. She, Mm -hmm. every inch, every day was for you guys. Yeah. And well, we could say we're a little obsessive because everyone uh, in our family has something except obsessive. for Brooks. Brooks is way more chill than us. He's Dominican. Yeah. He's more like Joe. <laughs> he's like Joe. <laughs> <laughs> he's more like Joe. There's a thing in, in major league baseball. A lot of the Dominican players are just like out there having fun and they're yeah. the best on the field and they're so fun to watch. but they're just like so chill and relaxed mm-hmm. and Joe's similar. But Joe also says like he doesn't get nervous on the, on the mound because he knows yeah. his stuff. He yep. trusts his body and it, he becomes it's adrenaline and yeah. um, almost like an inner calm. And I think that's, that's kind of standard across the board for anyone I know who's mm-hmm. good at their job. Okay. So let's go to uh, how do you handle high acute stressors in the moment? Let's say you get a really like something actually scares you in the plane. Well, if it was a snake, it wouldn't be on the pretty because I would be running. You don't handle that. I'd be out the door with a parachute or jumping out there. <laughs> you know, again, it feeds back to, are you really an expert at your job or you just say that you're an expert? Mm -hmm. And so do you know what you're supposed to know? And have you trained to be prepared? It goes back to being totally prepared. So when something happens in the aviation world, it's not good that you have to, you have to intervene or bad things could happen, you know, further on down a timeline. What, What naturally occurs, and I'm sure it does for everyone else and other 
other facets of life. But when you have complete preparation and you are, you have done the work when something doesn't go as planned, like Mike Tyson says this, and I think it's funny because I had him on a flight one time mm-hmm. and he's awesome, by the way. Mm-hmm. He was the most cordial human being. Mike Tyson flies Southwest. Yeah. Wow. Well, he's fallen. <laughs> time. I mean, he spent a lot of money, had fun apparently, yeah. but he and his wife flew and, and he, I'm a, I was a huge Tyson fan as a kid, but Mike said, you know, it's pretty philosophical. He says, everybody has a plan until you get hit in the face. Mm-hmm. And so basically he's right. He's saying that, that you can be prepared and everything as much as you want. But when, when you finally have something happen that you don't expect, how do you respond? And for the way I think what works for me is I just slow down, I slow everything down. And I tell the guys I'm flying with too. You know, you have a briefing you have to give before the first flight with someone. And I say, the most important thing that we're going to do today, if we have something go wrong and we have to make a quick decision, is we're not going to make a quick decision. Mm. We're going to take our time and go slowly, methodically. Because I don't know about you, but when I think or I say something quickly without thinking about it, or I do something without thinking about it, it's usually pretty bad. Mm -hmm. It's usually not what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. But when you slow it down and you let time just kind of, put the world on pause for a second and you say, let's think about this and rationalize it. And of course, in aviation, you don't always have time, maybe a constraint, Mm -hmm. but everyone has a few more seconds. Mm -hmm. So I would say just, just take more time and trust your preparation. Mm -hmm. I always think I I get asked a lot too about the fear of the unknown because with my job, especially in the past, but like, what are you going to do when that's not a job anymore? I got that question a lot. I came to the conclusion that I deeply trust myself and I am, the person for right. this and I'm reliable and I'm smart and I'm quick and I can think about things on my feet. And it took me a long time to be able to admit that to myself because a lot of the time, especially in women, we're not supposed to be confident like that. Mm-hmm. I believe it. So when I'm in a situation where something bad's happening or if I am in one, I'm like, who more do I trust than myself? I'm the person to get this done. So that's, again, I guess with the whole preparation, but a deep, deep trust deep for my trust. own skill. Yeah. You can I'm, fake confidence. You can yeah. fake it to the people. They go, ah, oh, that person looks really confident. You're just a mess inside. Yeah. But you can't fake confidence to yourself. Mm-hmm. And you can feel that too, I think, mm-hmm. with people. I feel more comfortable with people like that because my grandfather's that way. Mm-hmm. My dad's that way. Um, I'm used to men being that way, which was an interesting thing when I started dating because I can see through it immediately because I'm like, well, yeah. it's not really the quiet confidence that I'm looking for um, or that I respect, kind of. It's interesting to see that after growing up with people like y'all. So what's the most scared you've ever been in an airplane? Uh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have so many people on a plane. Yeah. Well, let's go back it's to like, let's say, now. yeah, Air Force time. Yeah, Air Force days. You know, that ride I was telling you about, that one mission where you ha- I had to do well to get past that ride, that was scary. But it was, again, when the things, when you start the process and, and the canopy does come down, you feel calm. Mm-hmm. Um, my, the most scary moments I've had have been, have been really highly unexpected things mm-hmm. that, so not during like over a war zone or something. No, th- those, you know, com- especially the combat that we had where, you know, U S troops weren't taking massive casualties and we weren't getting threatened with, you know, surface to air missiles and all the kind of stuff. But there has been some times in, in that arena that have been scary, you know, but they've been on the ground. So yeah. getting, getting a, a mortar attack. So yeah. you're, you know, you're walking to the gym for your workout or the cafeteria or the, call them the DFAC, the dining facility and a mortar start raining down on you. That's mm-hmm. scary, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't like the most scary that I, cause I expected it. Right. Yeah. I knew it was possible, but there was a couple of times once was in the, uh, we were in uh, Las Vegas, Nellis air force base. It's a huge airspace 
block just north of Las Vegas. Area 51 is mm-hmm. there, by the way. I'm always but like, Dad, what do you know? Nothing. I can't nothing. tell you. Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I can't release it here now in public. But there's these large exercises where there's over 100 airplanes in the air, and mm-hmm. 50 of them are on one side, 50 of them are on the other side. And everyone is trying to get to a single point to bomb the, you know, the, the fictitious target. I came very close, extremely close to running into another airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't see them and they didn't see me until it was way too late. And Like seconds kind of close? By the time we saw each other, there was nothing we could do. Yeah. It was just luck. That day, it was luck that we didn't hit. I was in an F-15 and they were in an F-16 and mm-hmm. I was attacking them. I was actually attacking his wingman. And then he, he kind of, he's a military term, he pitched in and mm-hmm. tried to find me. And I was just prosecuting attack on his wingman, trying to shoot him. Yeah. And by the time I saw him and he saw me, it looked like we were going to hit each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing Mach 1 point something one way, and he's doing almost the Mach the other. Mm-hmm. And, and Mach 1 is like the, speed the sound. Of sound. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, and so by the time I saw him, I reacted and I pushed the stick full forward, mm-hmm. which unloaded the airplane to like space zero G, you know, yeah, negative yeah. G. And then he pulled the other way. And the, we had these pods on the airplane that tell you distances and tracks everything. Mm-hmm. So you can recreate the fight in a big screen, kind of like a, a debrief, a huge debrief. These are called red flags, by the way. They're big mm-hmm. exercises. Anyway, long story, uh, we missed by about eight feet and it was luck. Eight if, feet yeah, going the speed of yeah. sound. And, but I felt his jet wash you yeah. know and he felt mine i thought we hit mm-hmm. i thought we hit and just didn't hit each other so squarely that it killed us yeah but it took me about two or three minutes to really and again so i slowed down yeah. i knocked off our little fight in the area mm-hmm. and i had a guy come over and look at my airplane and i was shaking mm-hmm. i mean the whole for the next hour the adrenaline that you know gets dumped in your system yeah and then when it starts to take its effect you had these these involuntary tremors yeah and I can't explain it to you, but you can't stop it. And you feel like a weenie, but you can't. Mm. you're just shaking the whole year. Not it does not similar to this, but I am so afraid of earthquakes. And I lived in LA oh, for gosh, so long that yes. I get phantom earthquakes. So my body shakes, and I will check Twitter to see if there was an earthquake. Yeah. Now I know when I get them here, there's not an earthquake here. Yep. But I used to have those internal tremors, so I feel like it must be like a more intense version of that over and over and it. over again. Yeah, you can't stop. You're it. just shaking. The crazy thing about the whole, yeah. you know, the speed of what you're going, you could actually be far away from someone. And then in one second, you're, oh, yeah. you're eight feet from them. Yeah. Closure, closure rates are, you know, well over 2,500 miles an hour. That you know, so it would have been nothing, yeah. It's that fast. would have been eviscerated. Nothing left. Nothing I got lucky. Left. Got lucky that day. And a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> going up in flames. True. Okay, so let's move on to a little, a couple relationship things. Okay. Um, do you have any advice for military marriages? My husband is in the Air Force, and we're 22, living yeah. in Okinawa. Have fun. I mean, the big thing with the military is it it really broadens your horizon. You can go do things you never would normally do. Like your mother and I chose not to really live in Europe, but we could have. Mm-hmm. That would have been really interesting. That'd been cool. But I think I would have hated it at the time, but yeah. I think now when I look back, I feel like it would have. It would have almost almost triggered the same thing in me that my high school experience triggered yeah. in me where it just opens your lens a little bit more. And I think that that's what yep. I really needed for my well, brain. And that's true. And, you know? and the, this, the question is a great question because one, the person asking it, thank, thank you both for your service to the country because it's something that, that is so precious and, and I mean, it's so self-giving to do that for your country. And, and here's the thing, 
the fighter pilot or the SEAL or the what Army Ranger, they get a lot of credit for that. Mm-hmm. But it's the wife or the husband who's not in, who's not doing that job. Yeah. It, it, zero credit. Or even just should, enlisted guys who make things happen. Yes. You know what I mean? People behind the scenes yes. in the Air Force and the, in the Army and the Navy. Yeah. Who aren't necessarily but, in the air boots on the ground. Yes. Your mother, your great grandmother of your your papa and, and, mm-hmm. and my grandmother as well, they serve too. And they, they, I mean, it's sad and it's, they don't get told nearly enough mm-hmm. how much they sacrificed because when we're out doing what we quote want to do, they're doing what has to be to. done every day, not knowing if the, their other half is okay or not okay or, mm-hmm. you know, happy or whatever. But yeah, so I, I would say that to that question, just engulf yourself in the culture that, where you are, especially if you're overseas and enjoy it and just really understand how special you are for serving your country because it is, it's still a voluntary force mm-hmm. and you volunteered to give not only part of your spouse's you know, life away if, if you had to, but you're giving a lot of personal time away and, and you're risking a lot of things. Uh, so they're special people for sure. Good answer. I feel similarly about Joe's job, which is great because I feel like I just went to another person who has a weird <laughs> job who like makes me move all the time, Yeah, which prepped me for this is why, that's why I never even thought twice about, okay, yeah, well we can move three times a year. Like sure, yeah. whatever we can move, whatever we need. Also, he's not going to die. No. Fingers crossed. And he's, um, he makes a lot more money than fighter pilots do, which facilitates everything <laughs> That's easier. That's why it was plan A for me. Yeah. <laughs> People are like, you know, we got to move a lot of the other, you know, athlete wives and girlfriends. We got to move this many times. Mm-hmm. And I had one person one time compare it to a military lifestyle. And I, I yeah. looked at them though. And I was like, yeah. no, no. <laughs> without That's the like, perks. Without, the, without <laughs> you know, someone leaving on tour or on deployment. And you're like, oh, okay, well, yeah. it took me a while. My dad was gone a lot when I was younger, but your last deployment I knew I was aware that was, was crazy going on. Peyton that impacted me more than you know because that was one of the reasons that I decided to get out which mm-hmm. I didn't know getting out I was gonna be deployed more but if I'd have known that mm-hmm. maybe different but I remember I was deploying to uh, Saudi Arabia three months gone and you were what seven mm-hmm. eight six seven you stayed up almost because I hadn't done anything to pack yeah. or get documents together that you need and so I spent the night right before I was going to leave doing that. And you stayed up at my side all night long. Yeah. And it was like, wow, she really doesn't want me to go. And and that was really, it was cool as a dad. It was hard. It was, I mean, I, I was kind of wanting you to go to bed and have a normal life, but mm-hmm. I, was, I enjoyed the fact that we could spend some time because it was just me and you. Everybody else was, you know, asleep. asleep. And Riley yeah. was like four, three yeah. or four. Yeah, I remember stayed up all night. that that feeling I remember I was just sad that you were leaving for so long I think yeah. and it was the only time it's you you start forming memories around that time yeah. but then when you went to the Middle East when we lived in Houston after that when yeah. you were in the mm-hmm. Air National Guard the last time I think you went I was 11 or 12 it was, yeah. 12. Brooks was, was over Easter born. I think it was over a holiday too yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. and mom was pregnant with Brooks yeah, yeah. and she was bedridden <laughs> pregnant and I was just <laughs> so there you were the help <laughs> I was just like 11 years old like okay I gotta walk Riley to school I guess we got to make some food because my mom was so sick with yeah, Brooks. she was. But that was a really interesting life. And But I remember, especially that last time you went to Iraq, mm-hmm. that's when it dawned on me that I, that there's danger involved. Because mm-hmm. we really didn't talk about the dangers or anything. We knew, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on, but we didn't speak about that kind no. of stuff until I was old enough to be like, oh, that's a, that's war. Okay. Yeah. What? Like we didn't speak about it like, oh, you're going to war or anything. Right. Which was interesting. So yeah, when people who are, you know, athletes, 
wives and girlfriends. One person mentioned it to me once. It's not a big deal, but I remember sitting there and being like, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, it's Kinda. not that. Yeah. <laughs> I see where you're going with this, but not really. <laughs> okay. So how did you balance career and family? I didn't do a good job of it. I knew and, that was going to be your answer and I was yeah, hoping, but I here's didn't. the thing. I think the reality of the situation is the, in my experience, we also live for your career. Mm-hmm. My mom by choice, pretty much she yeah. chose. And she's the reason it happened, period. We didn't choose that. We just thought there was no choice involved, but we, right. you're too young. You know, you're like, all right, well, mm-hmm. this is, everyone does this. This yeah. is the life we live. I didn't even think about not living that lifestyle, right. you know, but I think we all had to pitch in our own work or our own yep. sacrifices for you to do that job, the yep. moving and the, you know, whatever. But it was a unique way of growing up. It was a cool mm-hmm. perspective. And again, when I look at Joe, sometimes I'm like, okay, well, I will sacrifice moving and doing all this stuff because your job, it just makes sense for our our little unit that we're creating, Mm -hmm. right? So if you make more money than me, fine. And I have freedom of where I can live, then we're going to move there. Like that's just better for our unit as a whole. But I think that it didn't even cross my mind to not do that. And I didn't think that it was weird at all because of the way that I grew up. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that, but you're right. It's the the same thing. You've seen that template play out somewhere else and you just think about the unit i mean we were like it wasn't necessarily what my dad wanted to do it was what he wanted to do but at the end of the day it was what we did yeah we were in the military we were a a fighter pilot yeah family family yeah so we were a part of it a lot so i feel like balancing career and work in a traditional sense didn't happen yeah it was normal we were we were normal in our group yeah but our group was abnormal amongst other groups yeah absolutely yeah okay we're getting more into maybe like romantic interest for your daughters. What's the biggest red flag <laughs> that you look for in a man that your daughters bring home? He drives a, a van, first mm-hmm. of all, with no windows, <laughs> right? And a mattress yeah. in the back. That's a big red flag. I feel like you were never really super overprotective, especially no. with myself, because y'all, I didn't bring boys no. home. I really wasn't you super interested. You were really interested. selective. You yeah. were, we, your mom tells a story better than I do, but you were very selective. You wouldn't give your heart to just anyone or your time. Period. It was really my time. Yeah. yeah it was your time to anyone uh, who wasn't worthy. So, I mean, you look, I don't know. I mean, you look for the, the normal things. I think that dads will say, or moms will say, mm-hmm. is you look for someone, you know, when you bring a boy over to meet, what's really going on? Is it just a date? Mm-hmm. You know, is it you going out to eat? Is it a friend? But you went to a school where a lot of people, very similar backgrounds and similar parental involvement in their upbringing. Mm -hmm. So the kids you typically brought over that were in that same, you know, that ilk, if you will, they, they all seem very well-rounded kids. You know, you just, and we all knew, everyone knew each other's families very well. Like you could ask someone for someone's information. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You've seen them somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, that I was pretty good at selecting. And at least Mm -hmm. in my, my instance, I also just didn't select that much until later. Whereas your sister, had a boyfriend since she was like in preschool five. I yeah, remember four. that. No, in preschool. She was like, I love Benjamin Michael Stewart. Benjamin Michael Stewart was, was the first. Literally four. <laughs> I think they were just like her best friends. Like yeah. she was just friends with the boys. Yeah. And she was like, this is my boyfriend. And we're yeah. like, okay. She wanted that. Though. Yeah. She loved yeah. having a boyfriend. It was yeah. so cute. We loved Benjamin Michael Stewart. So how much do you love Joe? Wow. I think I would date Joe. If you did. <laughs> Joe's love the Joe. Best. Yeah. He's, I mean, again, I don't, because of his job and you living in LA, I don't know him, you know, extremely well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I hope to get to continue to know him, but I mean, you couldn't ask for a 
better person, partner, uh, friend, you know, than, than Joe from what I've seen. I mean, mm-hmm. and here's, here's the thing that, that pe- a lot of people, I mean, nobody knows because, you know, we don't, we're not a real, our family's not really, you know, we're not out there in any sort of public eye, but Joe is really good to your, to Brooks, to your little brother. He and he doesn't have Brooks. to be. And the thing is, it's second nature. I think he sees himself in Brooks because he'll be talking sometimes about something or doing something. And he's like, and then Brooks was doing this. And, all, and I'm like, wait, what? Rewind. Why? They, they talked two days ago on the phone. They, yes. He was like, your brother FaceTimed me today. I was like, Brooks has to FaceTime me. And I said, no. <laughs> what are you doing? But the, the big things, you, when you meet Joe and you're around him, just for the first 30 seconds, mm-hmm. kind, compassionate, soft-spoken, confident. He treats you well. You know, he he's extremely respectful of not only you, but you know, your mom and your dad and, mm-hmm. and your grandparents. It's just in these days, it's, he's, he's the throwback kind of, mm-hmm. you know, from, especially in his work. Cause there are a lot of professional athletes just get, because their, their time is, is spent, you know, in a very high performance arena. They have high performance out of arena stuff that they yeah. do. Joe doesn't, he's just, he's very much the, kid next door and he's humble and that's that, the one word the one thing says. i like about you know him away from being you know mm-hmm. a, your boyfriend is his humility yeah and how you would know about him from him yeah and that's cool well he goes he comes from a family of excellence yeah. so in his yeah, in his mind yeah. he's like he's like oh this is normal but that's the same thing as you saying i was the dumbest person in my you know rocket science classes <laughs> Joe will be like, he's like, yeah, I'm on the Nike roster, but like, I'm the worst one on the Nike roster. And I'm like, Joe, you're missing the point. You're on, you're the, on the roster. Right? Yeah. Like what? He's, he's an exceptional young He's man. very much like that, but it's because he grew up around yeah. people who are amazing at what they do. Yeah. And their expectations were high for mm-hmm. their family. And that's, that's, well, you can't underestimate how important it is for, you know, to see Joe, but then to see where he came from. Mm-hmm. You just go, well, first of all, wow, that family is amazing and whatever the, their mom and dad did and then their grandparents did is should be, you know, you should write a book on exactly how to do what they did yeah. to have what they have because it's pretty amazing to have that much success in this world yeah. in one lifetime. The, yeah. And every single one of them. Several generations. Yeah. All right. So how would you describe Peyton at age 10, <laughs> 20 and now and what has changed and what do you think has stayed the same? Well, 10, 20, and now the one thing that's still there from 10, from two, from two months is fiercely independent and fiercely passionate about what she, I almost said what she wants, but what she feels is right and just. You know why I wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) Exactly. That may have been great. But a 10-year-old Peyton, you were, you were so, well, you're gifted in so many ways. Obviously, you've got a big brain. You didn't always know that, but you did and you do, but extremely mature for your age in the sense that you were highly organized. I mean, didn't, didn't you have like a notebook by the time you were six and you had every, you had files and every file had a, had a tab that was typed out exactly what that was going to be. Yeah. I was a queen of taking notes. I also planned my day out in two minute increments (laughs) to optimize everything. Uh, What else did I do? I optimize everything. I do too much optimization. <laughs> now I have to stop optimizing at some point. Floppy disks. I also love those. I yeah. would take my floppy disk and like write out word documents yep. and save them as if they were a notebook. I was a big also 
I'm going to write it in the notebook and then put it online on the floppy disk. Right. And then that was going to be, so I had two, op- two things in case, you know, the house burned down and I was one of them was <laughs> gone. And I'm like, what, a, nothing is that important for me to be you know, seven. You were, you were backing up software before they backed up software. Yeah, I was you, you had a business. So you could yeah. have been McAfee or <laughs> Norton or something. I was backing up software and data. <laughs> but no, you were always, I mean, it, meticulous planner and organizer. And even to this date, I mean, you and I, we get disagreements. Mm-hmm. You could always argue your point. And you were arguing at that time, you were arguing with a, you know, a 35 year old man or a 31 year old woman, your mother. I'm literally 10. And you could, you could bring us to our knees with your reasoning. And to the, at the very end of the argument, we're like, Peyton, you're so right. How, how were we wrong? Well, not really. Because <laughs> what would happen was the argument would just go on forever and ever because I was not giving up. And to the point where even if my mom was like, you're going to be grounded if you say one more thing, I'm like, Whatever. one more thing. <laughs> um, actually, and she's like, I'm going to keep grounding oh, you. You need to have her on because she, <laughs> she can bring out, and your listeners want to hear it, I know, mm-hmm. but she will bring out some stories that show your, just your tenacity mm-hmm. in, in what you do and the person you are. So yeah, 10, 20, and 30 you're, you're tenacious, you're persistent, extremely organized, you know, uber talented and all the things, you know, that of course mom and dads think all their kids are so talented, but you really are in, in those ways. And, you know, I would, I would say some of the not so good things that come along with all those things you do is a lot of times you don't take the time to stop and smell roses yeah. and, and truly enjoy the moment of the moment. And I'm that way. I'm horrible at that. I'm all about, let's check that box. Let's accomplish the next thing. And your mom's like, well, why don't you just sit back and enjoy it and have a glass of something, have a drink and eat and enjoy what it feels like to mm-hmm. be in the moment. I think that mom never vouched for that statement, like kind of in her and little mm-hmm. world, because she thought, you know, she looks at you, what you're doing. She looks at my grandfather, what he's doing. Yeah. It was always excellence overrode everything. Yeah. And I was thinking about it the other day. I'm like, damn, why am I so anxious? And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. because you don't have an anxious kid and then try to jam excellence down their throat because by the way their anxieties are already making them think that you don't have to convince them to not be lazy like their cortisol yeah. levels are insane yeah, you were never lazy we could never we could not ever you always had every homework assignment done way in advance you mm-hmm. all you always had oh the first I mean, day i had homework spotless. i the first day i ever had homework i remember that day because i was so <laughs> excited i was so excited and I just, I, I, all I remember, and again, I probably have to unpack this in therapy, but I'm like, why am I not okay in life? Like I realized in the last you know few years, I'm like, I need to relax. And I'm like, oh, it's because we celebrated excellence so, so, so much, but some kids don't need that. Some kids no. need, hey, 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 like it's going to be, yeah, chill. it's going to be okay. We, we know you want to do everything yeah. right now. You want to go to law school at eight. We get it. You, I got an LSAT <laughs> book when I was in high school. You did. The excellence was a huge part of us. Yep. And I think at 20, I kind of started internalizing that. And then now the thing that's changed, I think, in my opinion, is I've opened my world up a lot. Completely. I was at 20. I was kind of an idiot, though. Yeah. Well, everybody is. I mean, everybody has those times. But again, going back to the 10, 20, and 30, and what what I've noticed at your age now, because when you get to close, you're getting close to 30, Mm -hmm. which makes me feel really old. I know. And I am old. I'll be 29 (laughs) at the end of the year, guys. And then. And so then. And it's a big one. And then. Peyton, the days are going to go a lot faster. The older you get, the faster the days Oh, they're going. already going so fast. Yeah. yeah. But you, you're, what I've noticed about you, your mom and I have talked about it and we appreciate, is you, you are now taking more time, at least our perception is, to enjoy the times mm-hmm. as opposed to just the time being an obstacle for you. I've I got to get through it to get to the next thing. I wish thing. there was more time to now, do now you, Yeah. Now you're just, you're appreciating the time for what it is. 
Well, I think that's what happens too when you work really hard for a really long time and you you start making enough money because I was not making enough money no. to live uh, the way that I want to. Right. I couldn't save. I couldn't invest. I couldn't do anything for years and years and years, literally until last year. Yeah. So when last year hit and I got that, I started seeing that income to where things weren't dwindling my bank account faster than I could spend them. <laughs> uh, I was like, holy shit, I need to like focus now on, on growth and worrying about investments and yeah. savings and things like that. And that brings a sense of peace because totally. it, yeah. it, you're not in survival mode as much, but I will say right now I'm having that transition from survival mode yeah. to calming myself down. And I'm not there yet because you, you're kind of like traumatized for a little while. Yeah. Getting out of it is, even if it's not real anymore, it feels like it could come back at any time. Mm-hmm even though it probably won't. And that's probably a bad way to live because you right. want to push forward and expect the best for yourself. Right. But getting out of this time now, hopefully by 30, I'll be a little less traumatized. You'll be less, but never be, never be not traumatized. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the trauma is, is part of what makes, gives life its seasoning. You mm-hmm. know, the, the stress is, if we all had great lives and nothing ever happened bad, and we, we well, lived as healthy as we want. Yeah, it'd be horrible. It'd be really boring. Yeah. Okay, so um, we have two more questions. What is the biggest life lesson the military taught you? Hmm. Or one of the big ones. I know it's hard one to think of the, of biggest. the biggest. Yeah. Um, I think it ties into what we just talked about. Strangely, that question was was right after the one that about mm-hmm. appreciating the time. So I think what I learned with the military was, is that we talked about this whole conversation, was I just wanted to be the best, best, best that I could be. And again, I knew, I knew through competition and things, you don't always have control of beating everybody, but with that process or with that, that vector, that map going that way, there's collateral damage. There's things you don't do well and there's and the things you don't do well are what you live with the rest of your life. And I'll, I'll say that, you know, the, all the, the plaques and the trophies and the, the, you know, the awards that you get along the way, they end up sitting in a box right now in an, in an attic. And it's the people that have to endure some of the times that you weren't there, or even when you were there, you You weren't mentally there. there. Yeah. Yeah, You're still, you're, you're nodding your head a lot. Like, Mm -hmm. like, you know what they're saying, or you're, you're with them at a certain time in, you know, in your life, but you're not truly engaged. Mm -hmm. And those, those things that, that you don't realize until you get older. And it's called maturity, I guess, because we all, we all race through life only to retire and find out we should have. There's, again, a famous quote. I don't know who said it, but they said that youth is wasted on the young. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Yeah. I mean, if you could, if you could experience and, and be mature and have all the, all the knowledge of how to appreciate, truly appreciate people and a, a few things, but mainly people in your life while you're young, when you could do it, when you mm-hmm. have the, you know, the mental faculties and the physical ability. And then when you get old and you wrestle with all the other stuff, life would be better if it was reversed. But yeah, I would say what military taught me simply was to value not only the time, but the people in your life, your closest life, your family more. Stop racing through life, trying to get to the next thing. Yeah. The next thing is right in front of you. That's a good application for literally everybody. Everybody. That's what I'm trying to deal with right now. And again, most of my life, I would say my younger life, which I count as my life. But once I, my life really started for me when I was 17. Yeah. My brain started working what made sense to me. When my life yeah. started making more sense and I was idle. And then at 17 and I was in my little like, you know, cage of, 
a You're golf course community yeah. <laughs> right. couldn't act different than everybody else. You were mm-hmm. socially ostracized really easily for literally anything. Yeah. And then going to a college that I loved because my family went there and I met my best friends there. Yeah, I loved the great. football games. It was fun to go out and stuff, but the way the school approached things was not for me. I felt not only idle, but restricted. Yeah, And that was something that I started realizing I wasn't engaging in my life. And I needed a quick change. And when I moved out to LA and was like, fuck it, we're going to do this. Yeah. I started engaging in my life. I started engaging in everything. So I was engaged in my life, but I was disengaged most of the time with our family and with a lot of my close yeah. friends. That's and great. now it's kind of a return to, um, I'm engaging in stuff, trying new things. This podcast right. was an experiment at totally. first. My brand is an experiment right yeah. now. But now I'm returning even at 28 to engaging right. more with family and friends, especially my close friends from college who I've not yeah. given enough time to. But it takes a little while, I think, to you have to engage fully in work and stuff and the things you think you want sometimes. And then you have to, you know, on a shorter scale than what you're talking about, you it took you a while to be really engaged in this. And then you come out of it and you're like, well, shit, I should have been engaged in these other things. I think you have to give yourself grace too, though, because you, you couldn't engage in both of those things yeah. at the same time. Nope. There's no way. I always tell people you're becoming more of a human being since the day you left the military. You just become more of a human. Yeah. Like my dad started talking <laughs> to my be, friends. I was a robot. <laughs> yeah. In college, my dad started like talking to my friends and they'd be like, my friends who have known me since I was like 12 would be like, your dad like had a conversation with me and I'd be like, yeah. he, he does that now. He's really talkative He's now. He's all grown up. <laughs> He's a very talkative guy. <laughs> okay. So lastly, what advice would you give your younger self? I'm assuming it's on those lines. Yeah. Same thing is it, I think the process is what it is, what it is on that. You to do some of the things that you want to do in your life, you have to focus on you and, mm-hmm. and be very narrow minded with your time and your energy and your effort, which leads to all those things we talked about. But yeah, I think the biggest thing would be to understand from an earlier age, just how it is important it is to slow down and, and truly appreciate and engage with and build the, I mean, I think in our family, we all have really good relationships, but they could be deeper. They could be more fulfilling. Mm-hmm. They could be more, you know, they could always be closer, always. Um, I feel like we fall in the middle ground because yeah. I, whenever I talk to people about their family, some people are super close. You know, like mm-hmm. they call, my friend Kelsey calls her mom three times a day. Like yeah. they're constantly talking. And then you have families who are more estranged and who are more like, well, we don't, we don't speak. Yeah. Like, or, right. you know, he's around, but like we don't really, not super involved in each other's lives. Yeah. Maybe some family members are, some aren't. I feel like we kind of fall I mean, in the middle, we're we're not like True. ostracized from each other at all. Well, I, I think we're spectrumized too, because I think, like I'm, I was on the spectrum of not being engaged, you know, and doing other things. And your mom is always engaged. Mm-hmm. And so that was brought, you know, you average it out. Yeah. We're always kind of the middle. And that's, I think that's because we have people in our family who are that way. Well, and then I left and went to LA and I was, everyone was always together and I was very disengaged yeah. for six years. And everyone not only was engaged physically, like my grandparents live really close to us and yeah. they're not as much as my dad with his grandparents, but my grandparents, I would consider to be a second set of parents. Yeah, for sure. They're I'm very, very close with them. And um, they were always as my grandparents, you know, and then my nuclear family and me always, just always gone for, mm-hmm. for six years, plus going out to LA in college and yeah. oftentimes staying at, in college station for right. the summer times and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that social media or um, technology makes us like more connected as well. It's easier. But yeah. yeah, by far the lesson or the, what the life has taught is that it's the relationships that truly matter and everything else, although you have to go through it and experience it and do it, the sooner you recognize, hey, it's the people, stupid, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the not necessarily the easier life, but maybe the more fulfilling and yeah. the more 
at peace you'll be yeah. with everything. Well, that makes sense. I know that Joe and I always talk about how we're both happy that um, we hadn't met anyone or hadn't met each other earlier right. on in our lives because we might have been yeah. more blinded by the, you know, there were guys that I, I really liked when I was younger. And once I moved out to LA and stepped foot there, there was in my head, you know, right. there was no time. There was nothing. There was no amount of time I could give to this person that sure. would help me have a relationship. And so Joe and I are always saying it's, it's cool that we got, we tried really hard for a long time and we're both still in our jobs and actually doing better than ever. Right. But we did all of that back end. You know, he's in the minor leagues. He's going, yeah. you know, staying in places for months and months at a time, traveling every single day, getting paid nothing. Yeah. He's like, I couldn't have supported a relationship. So yeah. I think Time we, we everything. met when we valued relationships. Mm-hmm. And that for both of us, that was our late 20s. You were able to do kind of both of it at the same time, though. You and mom had me. Yeah. And then you were 25, early. right in the middle of it. Yeah. And it was hectic. And that, that's yeah. the thing is, is and I, I had a pace that I had to do to do what I did. And your mom had to be a mom and still be a wife and mm-hmm. still be in the military. You know, she was in the military as much as I was. But yeah, so it was, our timing was not good. In that but you sense, made it work. but we made it work. Yeah. And I think most people do. Mm-hmm. Most people just make it work through brute well, force. I also and, thought it was interesting that you said it added a layer to your life, whether or not you were the most engaged in it all the time that was outside of sleeping, breathing, yeah. being a fighter pilot, which kind of made things a little bit easier sometimes, I think. Totally. A lot easier. Yeah. And so when a guy tells yeah. you, Hey, I have to focus on myself and I can't focus on anything else and my yeah. work is important. Be like, actually, <laughs> I know this fighter pilot <laughs> who had two kids. Yeah. Yeah. At your See, age. So you can do it. You're fine. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for yeah, coming on the fun. podcast. Yeah. We talked for a lot longer than I thought we would. I kind of didn't want to like stop the conversation at any point though to right. shorten it. And I probably won't shorten it in editing. So right. thank you for sending in your very thoughtful questions. And there were a lot. And I tried to narrow down to as many that I thought would be good, you know, material to, to run through all at one time. But I'm sure we can do something else with my family. We could do a round table talk with my family. Oh, and we yeah. Can all, Have your mom we on. Can because talk. again, she'll give you the inner perspective to Peyton's life mm-hmm. that you've never had. And it's hilarious. Well, we also, <laughs> we need to get mom on a mic and we'll, we'll see when uh, her, 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 her mic confidence comes up and she agrees to sit down with she me. She will. But yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun. We love you. We're so proud of you and happy for you. Just want to, want to let you know that, that you're doing exactly what you want to do. And that's a blessing for mom and dad. Um, thanks, Dad. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. You can catch a new episode of Note to Self every Thursday. Please, please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the good stuff. I always want to hear from you, so please leave a rating and review if you have a sec. Follow Note to Self on social for all the behind-the-scenes action and more info about the show at NTS by PS on Instagram and at Note to Self Pod on TikTok. And I'll talk to you all next week. 